the top questions that young adults ponder right now in life. You want to hear what they are? You might ponder some of them. How can I find a job where I'll make the most money? Next one, how can I find a community where I can really be myself? Last one, how can I be part of a purpose that will really inspire me every single day of my life? When we think about spirituality and this idea of salvation, some of us aren't necessarily pondering that. But what if I told you that spirituality and salvation is absolutely tied to those three questions? Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Hey friends, good to see all of you. My name is Philip, I'm one of the pastors here. And I get to shepherd young adults along the way in this journey of life. I am so grateful for this privilege. You know, a lot of you maybe are coming into this space with all kinds of feelings, wondering about just uh, what God might have for you this weekend. You know, here at Praxis, we are an Adventist community, and one thing that we like saying is Happy Sabbath. It's uh, a unique term that some of you maybe know very well. Others, you're like, dude, what in the world? But it's an endearing term for me because as a child, the Sabbath was a beautiful time. It was a time in which I could actually forget that we were poor. Because it was a time my parents would actually take the time. My mother in particular, my dad, you couldn't count on him to cook anything. But it was a time my father could enjoy a wonderful meal and so could the rest of us. My mom would make lovely food, and sometimes it was a little bit more simple. Other times it was pretty, pretty wonderful. You know, but there was one thing this poor family had going for it, and that was two parents who wanted to pursue education because they knew if we could get educated and our children could get educated, we could get further along in life. I don't know how many of you are foreigners, maybe first generation how many of you are going to college or graduate school for the first time in some of your families? My dad and mom pursued an education, and they were the very first to ever get graduate degrees. Um, my mom is the most educated woman on her side of the family, actually. Uh, so talk about women's history. I'm like, wow. My grandmother was the very first female elder in former Yugoslavia in the church. On my dad's side, uh, he is the most educated person. He actually went to college. No one else had ever gone to college. And so I'm the second generation of that blessing. Two parents who grew up with the tenacity to tell my brother and sister and I, listen, you can do more. And there is so much more that God has for you. And there is so much more that you can do to go even beyond us. And so I want to just publicly say thank you to my parents. I know they're watching right now. And tell you that they cultivated in my brother and sister a desire 
and a hunger for learning. My niece is here tonight, Ariane, and uh, you know your dad pushes you on education so much and it gets annoying. You're like, come on, let off. But that's the legacy that we've lived into. It's interesting what certain families cultivate. Because you can't cultivate something overnight and see its results. You can't cultivate uh, becoming a millionaire in a day unless you're an incredible influencer on Instagram, I guess. I don't know. That's not even possible. But the thing is, you can't cultivate something that's core and character level and assume it will appear in a short amount of time. Chaplain Barry Black, I'm reading his book, Have No Fear, phenomenal, phenomenal book. You've got to get it. Have No Fear. Write it down. Get it on your Instagram, on your Amazon list. And um, I haven't been on Instagram in like three months. I'm so happy. I don't know why it's in my mind. Um, Kelly's a champ. She took over that for me. So, um, But in his book, he talks about a story of an encounter that he had with Stephen Covey. He was one of the kind of the premier gurus of self-help. And uh, he wrote a phenomenal book, another book, you know, you need to read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in his breakfast that they were having together, they were talking about farming because Stephen Covey's family kind of came from a farming background. And he said, a farmer can't cram a harvest. You catch that? You can't assume that what that farmer would have planted one day that he would receive the next He would have had to cultivate the soil and plant the seed and faithfully water it and make sure the pests don't take over and ensure that there was just fertile ground to work through and plowing and taking care. And I mean, then maybe six months to nine months later, he would see the shoots come up and he would see the fruit emerging and it took time. In our generation, we are known as those who have no patience. I don't know how many of you get on your phone literally within seconds when you're at the stoplight. I mean, it's like my phone's next to me. The light turns red. Stop somewhere else. I throw it down, and then it turns red. And and you get to a line, and you're like, and people like push you, bro, go ahead. Oh, sorry, man, my bad, There's just this week, someone literally honked their horn and gave me the stare down. Like they passed by me and they were like. And I, and I just smiled and I gave him a thumbs up. Like, But it's because we just have no patience. We have no way of elevating our mind's processes to think about just life and What's next? And just have hope and just be patient. That's not the generation that we're in. Tonight we enter into a story of Jesus being secretive. A story in which at first glance you wonder, what in the world, why is he talking about that? Why this? And why 2,000 years later, Pastor Philip, are you talking about that same story? What is the big deal? We're talking about farming, and it's probably one of the most removed things from us as young adults. Like, who here farms? Anyone? We might have one farmer. Not a single farmer. Unbelievable. You bunch of professionals. Yeah, wrong crowd. 
If I was in the Midwest in Arkansas, I probably would have got a few hands. So we're going to talk about that, and you're going to wonder what in the world are we doing here, but I believe that there is a unique thing here that if you and I can grasp, it might just simply be one of the most profound things we hear this weekend that can transform the next days of your life. I believe in that so much, and so I want you to jump into this with me. Get in the text. If you have a Bible, watch on the screen behind me, and jump into the story of Jesus and this sower that was so beautifully kind of portrayed here with you tonight. Here, Jesus emerges actually after doing a lot of miracles, doing a lot of things for people. He says in the book of Matthew, he went to the sea. How many of you here, if I were to ask you, are you an ocean person or like a mountain person? If you are an ocean person, who do we got? We got any ocean people here? Okay, okay. What if I said the mountains and the forests? Nice. Total redneck over there. Derek. Derek's from Montana. I would expect that. I'm just kidding. He just climbed, guys. Unbelievable what he just did this last week. He climbed a 14er, Mount Shasta. Yeah. Sorry, I had to throw that out, bro. I know, I know, I know. Terrible, okay. Be careful if you speak out too loud, I'll call on you. But Jesus went to the ocean there, Galilee, a very small lake. And as he walked to the ocean, not the ocean, but that little lake there, just to kind of stare out into it and catch the sunset, people just kept coming. And I'm not just talking about a few people, but it says in the book of Matthew, so many people came that he literally had to step into a boat because they were crowding him into the water. It's like, whoa, stop. Like, you know, it was a huge number of people. They started to gather and they wanted to hear from him. Some of you have so little influence that no one seems to come knocking on your door to want to hear from you. Is that a terrible thing to say? But there have been seasons in my life when I've been so detrimental to people that I get very few phone calls Very few people want to look at me and talk to me. And it's a sad space to be in. But Jesus modeled to us that he had such influence, such impact, that people yearned to be in his presence, to hear one more word, to feel one more touch, to express one more vision of who he believed they might be. And there, as Jesus saw this multitude, people he had just healed, the stories, the chapters right before, heals a paralytic, heals a young girl, heals a centurion's family, the Gentiles, the infidels, the outcasts. Think about our society today. If you actually helped the marginalized, you might be someone that everyone wants to be around. Maybe we're helping out too much those who look just like us, have the same amount of money we do smell like us. So Jesus helps the marginalized and he gets such impact and influence that people want to be around him. And there he tells everyone this unique and weird story of four different portrayals of lives and people. And it begins exactly the way it was told in front of you. A man going out to sow his seed. And he sows the seed just without any kind of thought to it. That's kind of how they did it. They would just grab their hand and they have a full bag of seed and they would just, and just toss it. And just toss it. 
And there, as he's tossing it, some falls on rocky soil. Some falls on the wayside. Some falls in a space where there were really not a lot of roots to be able to be grown. But some falls on good soil. And let's look at this kind of explanation of the story itself. If you look at that now with me, beginning in verse 12. Luke chapter 8 and beginning in verse 12. And here it says, This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And the devil comes in and takes the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. It's interesting that we pondered last week the idea that Satan comes for us. The idea that Satan doesn't just kind of delicately move into our lives, but he goes into our lives to ravage it, to take that which God plants, to take that which we've cultivated. But the reality here also emerges that it says that he wants to do something really in particular, and that is to take the seed which would breed salvation. I don't know how many of you actually think about salvation. They say that our parents' generation really would think about salvation a lot. It was like, am I going to be saved? Am I going to make it? When I talk to young adults and youth in particular, there's really very little thought about that. We're the generation that actually doesn't really think a lot about those type of things anymore. Now, I don't believe the crowd I'm speaking to tonight is that same crowd, but I do believe that we don't ask those same questions. You've maybe heard it said before that the church is speaking about issues that aren't actually the issues of our generation, speaking about a time that had long gone and passed. What are the issues that we actually think about when we think about our lives? The top questions that young adults ponder right now in life. You want to hear what they are? You might ponder some of them. How can I find a job where I'll make the most money? Huh? Any of you think about that one? Bro, that's why I'm here. You know it. (laughs) Next one. How can I find a community where I can really be myself? Last one. How can I be part of a purpose? that will really inspire me every single day of my life. When we think about spirituality and this idea of salvation, some of us aren't necessarily pondering that. But what if I told you that spirituality and salvation is absolutely tied to those three questions? What if I told you that if you were to get into the space of understanding that Jesus, caring about your salvation, also cares more deeply about those three questions than even you do? That he deeply cares that you would find a spouse that would be exciting and meaningful to you. That you would actually find relationships with people that you would be known and fully realized in your life that inspires you. That you would find a career that provides for your basic needs and even more than that. But you have to first understand the principle of Matthew 6.33. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and then everything else will be added unto you. Unfortunately, with our generation, we've literally flipped everything. We've said, how can I get everything? And then if I have time, let me get some God. If I have some time, let me read my Bible. If I might have some time, I'll jump into church. And I have some time, maybe Pastor Phil, I could greet someone at the door. But don't ask me to do too much because, you know, I don't know how to talk with people too much. I don't know what you'll say. I'm just making stuff up. But the reality is we flipped the vision of what God had in store for us. But this is what I want to promise you, exactly the promise that Jesus does. If you seek first the kingdom, if you seek first his righteousness, then everything does get added unto you. And sometimes the adding unto you, as the Greek brings out, is actually a transformation of your understanding of everything that you really wanted. And you begin to realize the vanity of it all. There was an incredible house that was built in Los Angeles. A house that probably can never actually ever be built again just like that. You can look it up online. Don't do it right now. I know it's really going to be interesting. But it's called The One. It's a house that just sold for $140 million. It was built by a developer who develops incredible properties, luxury properties. Austin, don't do it. No, I see you doing it. I see you doing it over there. Come on, don't do it. Don't do it. But anyways, he develops these properties, and he, and he makes them in such incredible ways that people are just blown out of the water. The problem is that house that he envisioned would sell, that sold for $140 million, he anticipated it would sell for three-fourths of a billion. He thought he would make such a house that would be so desirable, so amazing that people could be fighting over it and that it would sell and make his investors wealthy and everyone rich and that people would ooh and Google and oh my goodness, you made it. But see, that's the problem with our desires and Satan knows that very thing. That we allow our desires to get ahead of life's greatest priorities. And when we reverse those two, we end up in a darker and more discouraged place because the brother ended up going into bankruptcy, ended up losing everything that he yearned he would have. You see, when we flip the desires, Satan wins. Don't let him win. The second reality emerges. Jesus looks at his disciples, explaining now the second reality. And beginning now in verse 13. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The idea of testing is a strange thing. To some of you who take very few tests, to those of you who take a lot right now, you're like, bro, I get it. I get it. But you see, tests are really important because they reveal everything you've cultivated along the way. For some of you, if you're like me and you were in college and high school and other places, you got away with the big cram. You got away with the night before, I'll spend all night studying, I'll take a few power drinks, I will have my roommate Throw water on me if I think of falling asleep as he's studying. You'll do whatever you can in order to cram and make it. 
The problem is you have zero foundation, actually, in the knowledge base of what you're being tested on. Yes, you may get the grade. It's very possible. I kid you not, I got really far cramming until I hit biology 101. There I was about to hit the biggest test of my life, Dr. Steen in biology. If anyone knows Andrews, he is a living legend. Amazing guy. Cool dude. But he was also known as a really tough teacher. Biology 101 first semester was known as the crusher because it crushed the dreams of all of us who imagined getting into medicine would be easy. Man, the brother, literally, I don't know if this was his goal, but he's like, I want to see how many students I can get out of my class halfway through. Make the test so hard. Their dreams are crushed and they go crying back home. And that's exactly what would happen to so many. We started with over 125 people in the class. They literally were sitting in the aisles. There were so many students. By the second test cycle, all the aisle seats were gone. Students were just dropping the class left and right, and there I was, the exam right before the final, and I thought I could cram. I went into the middle of the hallway. My roommate had fallen asleep, and I'm trying to study under the light. It's like one in the morning. I'm like barely making it, and I, I can do this. I can do this. And then I end up walking through the halls, reading to myself, the phyla of this is that... And this is how this works. I can't even remember the name. The Krebs cycle is for this. And I could not get it. I could not get it. And there I end up kind of trying to keep myself up, propping on the pool table there in the middle. I'm keeping my, and this is how NAC works. If you put it together. I was struggling. I was struggling. And I just said, let me just put my head down a little bit on the, the pool table here. And I was out. I was out. All of a sudden, guys start waking up. People start moving around in the halls. And there's my drool all over my book. I'm like, what happened? Six in the morning. I had one hour to cram still. Sure enough, I get to the exam. And I just, I don't know what happened. I flew through it. I mean, I was the second person done. I mean, I nailed it. So I thought. Dr. Steen literally surprised because I was usually the last person done on these things. He looks at me. He's like, Philip, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? And he kind of flips through my page. He's like, are you sure? Like, take a look at that. And I was like, Dr. Steen. I was literally in this strange, like, non-sleep euphoria. He's trying to like wink at me like, look at this again. And I just look, I get it. (laughs) The thumbs up thing again. It comes back. I had it early on in life. And so I get the exam back and sure enough, what I thought was true, I didn't pass. D minus. The worst grade I'd ever gotten on a test. He called me into his office and he said, Philip, how are you studying? And I told him, what's studying? (laughs) And he said, exactly. And so he worked with me. The brother worked with me. The brother worked with me and he helped me with study strategies and this and that. 
And this guy who crammed, who didn't build a foundation, had to learn what a foundation takes to build. It took saying no to people. No, I can't go hang out with you. At least not now, maybe 10 minutes later. You know? And I would spend more time in the books, more time in the books, more time in the books, and I would have to fight continually distractions left and right. Why? Because I needed to build a foundation. How many young adults today have grown deep in the things of this world, the deep places of whatever their desires are, and yet our spiritual foundation is so shallow that if a wave of struggle might just blow at you, you fall over. God, where are you? I can't believe the position I'm in. Why would you abandon me, Lord? I can't believe it. And that's the journey of, of the people that I see on so many times. And that's the journey I've been through in so many times. And it's like, God, but I thought you said, Lord, you would protect your people. Oh, did you forget the Bible verse that said the Lord didn't promise good days? And did you forget the Bible verse that said the, uh, the righteous and the unjust both face the difficult seasons? Did you forget the Bible verses about Job's life, a man who was perfect in all ways? You remember those? And see, that's the thing that Jesus looks and he says, if you would but hear what I'm trying to say is you've got to grow deeper spiritually than where you are now. I've said this, I think, once before when my wife was sitting down with one of the most premier radiology professors, Dr. Keto, emeritus, graduate from Ivy League school, phenomenal brain, amazing guy, lovely person. And there he looks at her and he says, what a shame it is that all of you going into medicine have exponentially grown intellectually, but exponentially driven yourselves deeper into the despair spiritually. For you've not spent a single ounce of energy diving into that which might save your soul instead of padding your wallets. The foundation is more important than anything else. You cannot cram your spirituality. You cannot assume every one of us will be that guy on the cross. God, would you save me this moment? Please, Lord. Yes, 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 he will save you. Yes, oh, that is for sure. For grace is not based on works. No, it is not. Let it be said and let it be said every single day of your life. You are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your works, but you are discipled and you grow deeper with Jesus by them. Listen to this quote by Dallas Willard, a, a phenomenal theologian that I so cherish and adore. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. In fact, nothing inspires and enhances effort like the experience of grace. When you understand the beauty of grace, when you understand the significance of what Christ has done for you, it spurns you on to live a life of depth. Because discipleship, becoming like Christ, is the gift of time spent with him. We're not going to a place in the end. Yes, I believe in heaven. Yes, I believe in the reality of heaven. But I think if we forget that 
it's about going into a relationship, we'll get it all mixed up. I'm not trying to walk through the journey of salvation so that I might get to a place. I'm trying to walk through the journey of becoming more like Jesus because I'm spending time with a person who's going to be in heaven. And if we miss out on that reality, then we'll miss out on the whole point of it all. It's not about a place. It's about a person who's going to be in a place. That it's invited you and me to be at that place and to invite as many people to be with us there. And he says, when you grow deeper with me, when you become more like me, your influence increases where then you end up getting into a boat to look at the masses and speak to them all. Because people want to actually be around you and be with you and actually be in love with you and hear from you and feel your touch and be in your presence. Because why? You look like him. You care about those who are marginalized. You care about those who don't look like you. You care about those who would interrupt your studies, who would interrupt your life, the people who step in the middle and and give you a mess, but you say, God, I'm going to spend time there. My buddy Sean, he spent a lifetime of just working, but he got to a point where he realized, God, I want to do more than that. You heard from him some months ago, and he sits here with us, and he says with his buddy, God, I'm going to give my life to helping the marginalized. And there, a pharmacist, graduate from our school, thinks bigger and says, how can I help the marginalized in Victorville? And runs a free clinic to help people. Why? Because he realized he wanted to be more like Jesus and less like the money-grubbing desires maybe of his soul that he felt at one point. It could have been there, but God transformed that. I don't know how many of you walk into the space with all kinds of desires. Listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with money. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a degree. Don't ever say that. I'm I'm here at Loma Linda because I believe in the degrees. My wife is a graduate of the degree. I'm getting a degree. But I am saying, let your heart be transformed. And so we go on to the very third one. And Jesus looks and he explains it further. Beginning now in verse 14. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but they go on their way and are choked by life's worries, riches, pleasures, and they do not mature. This is probably the one that I'm most afraid of. Because when I read that one, I see myself. I worry about how my retirement's going to do as I play around on Robin Hood. I know I shouldn't, but I do. I worry about that one as I worry about the cares of our life and raising children and taking care of a home. And I worry about that one as I think, God, I'm struggling emotionally. I feel exhausted. But then Jesus, though, says this last one, and this is where I just take hope. Here in verse 15, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by preserving, produce a crop. The noble and good heart. That's what I want. And that's what I want for each one of you. Listen to these four ways to ensure you and I have a pure and noble heart. Number one, we have to ask God for that new heart. You have to ask him for it. 
the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26, there's that famous verse where, where you hear this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone the heart of, and give you the heart of flesh and give you that which you need. But you have to ask for the new heart. Number two, if you want to ensure that you have a pure and noble heart, one that develops good soil in your life, you have to actually guard the heart. What do I mean by that? Listen to this verse, Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Guarding the heart is a strange thing because Jesus tells us, hey, be in the world, but don't be of it. Work in the world, but don't work so much that you think that's your goal. But, and it's a strange place to understand how to guard one's heart. So a few steps that I kind of think through when I'm talking about guarding my heart. I ask myself, would Jesus be excited to be amongst me if I'm in this, watching this, listening to this, taking part in this? Would Jesus be excited? Some of you have that kind of vision of Jesus being a joy kill. I don't have that anymore. I grew up with that. Grew up in a really like kind of a conservative Eastern European like, you know. But I also had a balanced mom who would just love life and smile and laugh and just kind of excite us. And, and it kind of helped me realize that, hey, God is actually really cool and fun and there's a lot of meaning here and this is great. And, and so I could develop this healthy relationship with spirituality. But then there are places that I've gone in my life that I'm not proud of. And I know, shoot, Jesus would not have any business with this. So guard your heart. From it springs the wellspring of life. Number three, ways to ensure that you build a pure, noble heart. Third, we must honor God with our heart, not just our words. Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When you say you walk in the journey of Christianity, you actually have to walk in the journey of Christianity. You know, there was this really great philosopher I just recently read. He said that, unfortunately, Christians need to be reintroduced to Christianity. For they've developed this mindset of gaining more church members and not actually becoming disciples. We say a lot, we do little. Fourth way of ensuring that you build and live into a pure, noble heart, we actually have to pursue purity. Second Timothy Chapter 2, verse 22, now flee the youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is one of the most difficult things as a young adult, particularly when we're in a single space or when we're dealing with temptation, whether you're single or married. Purity looks like a lot of things, but sexuality seems to continue to sell till we die. It seems to continue to sell till... You just have no sex drive, I guess. But the problem is, I remember one of my senior pastors, he met with a man who was 91 years old. And he looked at this pastor and he said, Brother, I don't know why, but I still find women so attractive. 91 years old. Pursuing purity also happens in a few different ways, and I don't want to give you the conventional ways. Run like Joseph ran. Bounce your eyes. 
memorize scripture and quote it left and right. I want to give you one way that I believe that is so essential for us to do in this generation. Rehumanize the people around you. We look at individuals as objects of our passion. We look at the women or men around us as objects of our desire. Whether it be if I married him, I'd have comfort and safety. If I was with her, she would fulfill all my greatest hopes and fantasies. If I would just have 10 minutes behind the screen, it would do everything I need to have done with my anxiety and stress and relieve so much. And we dehumanize the society of humanity. When God calls us to look at our brothers and sisters, it's exactly that, brother and sister. It's pretty old school, you know, for a pastor to say, hey, sister, I'm so glad you're here, Sister Phoebe. Hey, brother, I'm so glad you're here, Brother Kel. But the reality is that it's one of the most ancient greetings of the New Testament church. It was to call our fellow believers as brother and sister. Why? Because that is exactly what God has called us to be. He is our greater brother, and we likewise are brother and sister. As you pursue the journey of nobility in heart and mind, Pursue it by rehumanizing the dehumanized. And it is a difficult work, but I believe it is one of the most important things you can do on guarding your heart and ensuring that you have good soil. Because so many of us are dealing with addiction and, and feeling guilt and shame about ourselves. And instead of being that good soil, we feel like we're the soil with no foundation, like keep the seeds away from me. I don't feel right. I don't feel good. I can't believe how many times I have had couples that are doing premarital counseling with me bawl their eyes out because they had sex before marriage. And we've even made the idea of virginity this idol that if you lose your virginity, you've lost almost everything. And I want to encourage you to live into the gospel gift of grace. Recognize, yes, you might have lost some form of naivety. You might have even lost your virginity. But recognize the gift that God has given you in what Jesus has done for you. The blessing of his mercy upon your failure. That is Christianity. That is why we need a Savior. If you think your shame will wipe the guilt away, friend, you're in a cult. You're not in Christianity. You're not living in the grace. You're not living the gospel. You're living in a cult of your own imagination where you idolize purity at such a level that you forget to idolize the one who made you, Jesus. And may the grace of God leads you into a more deeper depth that gives you greater strength so that, yes, maybe you can get to the level where you continue to say, hey, I'm saving it, but you already lost it. I'm saving it now. Get off my back. That's what grace does. That's the good soil. I believe in virginity. I believe in purity, sexually, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. But I want you to also live in the reality of God's mercy upon you so that good soil might develop in your lives. And so I leave you now in conclusion with two implications as we finish tonight. Two implications really quickly. 
The first implication of the good soil, the good life, is asking yourself a couple questions right now. Number one, how do I ensure my life is good soil where God can grow blessings out of it to feed those in my sphere? Number two, what do I need to gain to enrich the soil in my life? And what needs tilling and tending to my mind and heart? The second implication is this. It's a collective implication as a church. Number one, as a church, we need to know the gospel deeper. Number two, we need to live out the gospel. I love this quote by Francis Chan who wrote this in his book, Letters to the Church. He writes, the church today has become predictable. You go to a building, someone gives you a bulletin, you sit in a chair, you sing a few songs, a guy delivers maybe a polished message, maybe not. Someone sings a solo, you go home, period. Is that all God intended for us with the church? Is that the good soil? You see... As a church community, when we live out the good soil, we live out a good culture that the world sees and falls in love with and says, I want what you have there. When Gandhi got to visit America for the very first time, this Hindu intellectual, graduated degrees, a man of many uh, accolades, a lawyer, there in his white garb, he looks around and he says these words after spending all this time with these people of Jesus. I like your Christ, he says. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. A people who were so shallow, who didn't have the depth in their lives. Friends, my encouragement to you is to recognize, as a people, may we be known of good soil. May we be known as those who deeply love Jesus. May we be those who seek after righteousness first, knowing that he would give us really the desires of our heart. And may you know today the genuineness of God's love for you, that he is for you and not against you. My friends, it's going to take a little bit of effort. You're saved. Don't worry about that gift of grace is given to you and there Peter says if any would but ask and receive but it does take some effort to grow into a disciple to become like Jesus takes time with Jesus I'm not going to give you a prescription list of how to do that but I will tell you this when you spend time with him you will become like him and you will become good soil Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org give, 
you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment and make such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.